seated. Sarek mentioned our passage this morning comes from the book of James, chapter 5, starting in verse 13. I'll be reading. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with if you like to follow along. If you happen to have the ESV that you guys use here, it's on page 1013 to make it easier to navigate. Hear now the word of the Lord. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, we do ask that you would please hear our prayers and instruct us from your scripture about prayer. The the very man, our brother James, who wrote this was known as camel knees. So often did he bend down in prayer, lifting his voice, crying out to you. Would that your spirit fall on us and move in our hearts in such a way that we would be a congregation, a people of camel knees. Not so that we could brag about it, not so that we could boast, but that we might know you. That we might, through this very avenue of fellowship with you, take advantage of this great access which we have. I confess this sermon is as much for me as for anyone who might hear it this morning, but we pray, even as we have just sung, that wherever you, wherever we go, you will be with us and you draw us to yourself. So would you do that now in this time together? And we pray this now in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The boxer, Mike Tyson, was commenting on a opponent that he was about to meet in the in the ring and it was actually a very overconfident opponent that he was about to meet in the boxing ring and he said this about his opponent everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth true words mike tyson and it's not just about boxing is it it's really about all of life we all have a plan about how we are going to live our life how we are going to muscle through how we are going to do what we think that we need to do very often we do this we work our plan in a very presumptuous or self-centered way sometimes not but then we get punched in the mouth bam life hits a smack in the jaw We endure suffering, and maybe it's the suffering of hard circumstances in our life. Or we have to redirect, remove in our life because of something that has changed. We've lost a lot of money, or we've made bad decisions, or things have just happened to us. Or maybe it's an illness, or maybe it's 
just kind of the stuckness of life where we feel like, man, I'm just not going anywhere. Or even stuckness in our marriage, our relationships. What, what, what's going on with this? Are, are these the children? Are these the parents that I've been given? What am I supposed to do? We get punched, right? And very often the thing that we want to do when we have those hard circumstances in life is, you know, on the one hand, maybe we just want to give up, anesthetize, numb ourselves to the things that are going on in life. Or we will default into the American gospel of self-reliance, right? God helps those who do what? Help themselves right there. Words coming from the front row or almost the front row. Yeah which we know is not the true gospel. Or maybe it's even worse, and worse especially for the state of our soul, that we're not getting punched by hard circumstances in life. We actually have a very comfortable life. We're the cheerful ones that James is talking about. So much so that it actually never even occurs to us to say thank you. Thank you, God, for what you've given me. Instead, we just kind of glut we go to the, the, the buffet of all the blessings that God has given us and just gorge ourselves and never stop to engage the Lord in prayer. James knows that he has got a wide spectrum of, of people that he's preaching to, and he is not content to leave us where we are, no matter where we are on the spectrum. He's speaking to folks all along with very, who have various experiences, whether they are cheerful whether they're sorrowful, whether they are sufficient where, where, where they are, or maybe they are experiencing suffering. What James is preaching, what he's writing, and really what he wants us to understand this morning, what God wants us to understand, is that we need to all be pulled into a deeper and stronger engagement with God by reminding us that what we call Christianity or following Jesus or how, whatever lingo you want to use is not simply an individualistic expression of faith, but it is about a community who is banded together through vital partnership in worship and prayer to the living and true God. You see, church is a people who move away from, and I think we all feel this, this cultural trend of expressive individualism. What my faith is is what I feel and what I talk about and what I express. And instead we are called to in a sense, lose ourselves and find ourselves by living together closer, not necessarily living next door, but living together closer in prayer, allowing our lives to be woven together to bear one another's burdens and and, and to share this collective effort of worship and witness to the resurrection. With that in mind, we're going to consider what James has to say about prayer and Probably a good place to start is by answering the question, what is prayer? You probably all know from memorizing your shorter catechism that the, that the summary that the Westminster Divines, which is also a good name for a basketball team, came up with in summarizing what Scripture taught on prayer, said this, that prayer is an offering up of our desires, right? It comes from the heart. It's an offering up of our desires unto God for things that are agreeable to his will in the name of Jesus, with also confessing our sins and a thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. So prayer is kind of, at least according to the shorter catechism, it just kind of echoes what James says here, that regardless of your situation, cheerful 
or sad, strong or suffering, there can be stability because of Christ and enjoying and fellowshipping with Christ in prayer. Now, did you ever think about this as you think about your prayer life or how it is that you engage in prayer, that the way that you pray or why you pray or what compels you to pray very often, actually all the time, will give a picture of what it is that you believe about God. Who is it that you believe God to be? Is he someone who's just kind of there at the end of the string that you pull and he responds because he's just, you, you put the spiritual quarter in and you get the spiritual Coke out because that's who God is, this cosmic Coke machine. We very often, I think, go to God because we, we see him as someone who will prop up my ideal view of life, maybe even this fantasy life, kind of this, we have this laundry list of things that we want God to do. A friend of mine, um, he's told this story before, so I'm going to tell it on him because it's a good story. His name is Leo Schuster. He's a pastor in Houston. Uh, he was calling his assistant at church one time, and he was just kind of saying, okay, Adrian, I need you to do this and this and this. And he was just listing, listing, listing things, probably talking for a couple of minutes. And then at the very end, he said, amen, and hung up. And he left that on the voice message for her. And so she called back and was like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, that's exactly the way I pray. And I just kind of got into this cadence. And it kind of was a bit telling about his view of who God was. He was just the one who did his laundry for him, so to speak. He was the one who answered this long list. In a different manner, C.S. Lewis was asked one time after the death of his beloved wife, Joy, if he still prays, because he had offered a lot of prayers for healing and restoration and for God to spare her life. And obviously this didn't happen. And, and I don't know if Lewis was perturbed or not, but he initially said, well, I wouldn't be too impressed with the God who was just kind of at the end of a string, just waiting for me to pull it and was going to respond. He said, but this is, and this is genius when he's talking about prayer. He says, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I am helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't, hear this, it doesn't change God. It changes me. But there's a sense in which prayer is used as almost the hands of God to shape and to mold the very heart of the one who is praying to be brought into conformity and delight and satisfaction of the mystery of knowing God. So that means also, and I think you know this if you have prayed for something in particular or someone in particular, that prayer involves a waiting, a patience, even a quietness. And this isn't passive. This is a very active waiting and quietness. But it also entails an other-centeredness, right? You're, this is the paradox of what it is to follow Christ. You're going to find yourself by losing yourself. And you're, there's a sense you lose yourself in prayer because you are focused on someone else. You're focused on God to whom you pray. And you're focused on that one for who you're praying for. And so that's what James is talking about in a sense, is this idea of this partnership with prayer. And look at the collective language that structures this passage in verse 16. He just you know, to, to alleviate any mystery, he says, pray for one another. And then he says in 13, if there is anyone among you. So woven throughout James's theology of prayers, this corporate dimension that we help each other 
through prayer. It's not just about how God changes us, but also how we are helping and, and in a sense, discipling in a very secret but powerful way each other. We are God's family because of our elder brother Jesus has, has given himself for us and brought us into this family. And part of our family privilege and responsibility is to pray and to shape one another. And so um, the, the main idea is that, or at least the chief idea in that is that we need each other to help one another see what is most obvious and what our most obvious need is in life. We need uh, people, we need to be praying for one another and we need people praying for us, even if we don't know about it, so that our lives might be shaped and moved toward understanding and walking with God better. Because what is it that is most likely to be missed by us in our life? It is the centrality of God and his role in our life as Lord, as Father. And Jesus even said he's our friend. It's an interesting story I read um, a while back about former President Ronald Reagan. He was giving a campaign speech, and then after the speech, there was this class of, uh, this one class from an elementary school, and all of the children in this class, apparently it was a special school, um, were blind. They couldn't see the president. And for Reagan, that just wouldn't do that he would sit there and speak to them as some kind of disembodied voice. So he invited the children to come up and sit in his lap, and the little children just started running their fingers all over his if you remember Reagan, his finely coiffed hair and over his face and over his suit and jacket. And this is the most powerful man in the world. And the children just have access and they're getting to see what they can't see by, by touching his face. Y'all, you and I are blind. Spiritually, at least, or at least partially blind. And we don't see God like we should. And so... In prayer, when we pray for one another and when we are prayed for by one another, it's almost like we are having someone put our hands on the face of God so that we might understand him better as we see our own need, as we see our lack, as we see the goodness of God. That's the purpose of prayer. That is one of the benefits of prayer, the spirit helping one another out in our great need. And James talks about need, doesn't he? Look at the next passage, the next point of the passage. He says, if anyone is sick, let them call the elders to pray and to anoint. And maybe this is one of those passages you read and like, oh, this is the weird stuff about following the Lord. It seems so distant and so removed from our experiences, modern 21st century people. We're talking about oil being poured out and, and, and being used. It seems kind of magical. What's going on? Well, there's a couple of things. I want to talk about the oil because I actually think it has some relevance here for us. On the one hand, whenever James talks about uh, anointing with oil, there is a, a rich biblical tradition and history embedded in the, in the pages of Scripture of associating the Holy Spirit with the pouring out of oil. For example, one, in Psalm 133 talks about pouring out oil on the head of Aaron and Aaron the priest, and it flows down his beard and over his chest plate that has all the names of the tribes of Israel written on it. And the idea is it's echoing back to when Moses in the book of Numbers prayed for the Holy Spirit, prayed for God to send his spirit on others to help him lead the people. And so it's a, this, it, it's a reminder to God's people, this pouring out of oil, uh, that they're being emblemized and pointed to the fact that God is the one who is chiefly at work in our need. It's a tangible, physical reminder 
that God is at work and is at work. And he is the one who chiefly and most importantly has to be at work in any of our prayer needs. But then there's also this, right? And we think, oh, that's, that's so exotic. It's interesting, but it's removed from our life. But oil was also used as an ancient medicine. Do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan, right? And remember what the Good Samaritan did after he kind of packed that guy up on the road, took him to the inn and paid for him to be there. He asked that he would be, uh, that the balm of oil would be applied to his wounds. And so I think it's important to say, especially living in Oregon where this is actually kind of a live issue, that God ordains the ordinary healing as well through doctors and medicine. It is not more spiritual to get healing without medicine. I think that would be a a completely legitimate takeaway from this passage. But the main thing, regardless of, of what our need is, to recognize that you are all equally dependent on God in every situation. That all healing ultimately comes from God above. So the question then is, do you pray? Will you pray? How will you pray? Well, James tells us, look at verse 15. He says, to pray the prayer of faith. Now, what is the prayer of faith? Is this a super duper highfalutin, cinch up your belt kind of prayer? You really crunch your eyebrows and then you bring it, right? It's that bringing that spiritual mojo. Well, you know, all throughout the book of James, he's been talking about faith, the need of faith. What is, what is faith and how, how does it work? How is it applied in our life? And just first rattle out of the box. Chapter 1, verse 6, he says, look, man, you got to, the whole of the Christian life is lived by faith, and whatever you do, you got to do by faith. You can't be half-hearted, and you can't treat your relationship to God kind of like a rabbit's foot. You can't be tossed and turned about on the waves, right? You have to be committed. You have to really believe. It has to be a prayer of conviction, right? So we don't uh, want to think of prayer as kind of a, a lucky charm that's going to do anything. I can't remember which religion it is, so I don't even want to put it out there. But I, I know that there's this idea of a prayer wheel where you put your prayers on this wheel and put it in the wind. And as the wind turns, the prayers are, in a sense, offered and will be answered. A very mechanistic view. That is not the view of how we relate to a personal God. Rather, it is a prayer of conviction that this God is good, he cares, and he's engaging us. So much so that, he, that, that James says, when you pray the prayer of faith, what happens? You will be saved. Now, that's a pretty audacious claim, isn't it? You will be saved if you pray in faith, in conviction, and trust that God is good and at work. Now, what does that mean? Because that can seem, that could be very dangerous Easily twisted and turned, right? Does it mean that if the elders pray for you and you are not healed, just to go with what James is talking about here, then either you or the elder was somehow faithless, untrustworthy, unbelieving spiritually? No. That's not what James is talking about. James, who himself died as a martyr. The, the background, the assumption of this is that we don't know all of God's purposes and what's going on in our life, why we are afflicted with what we are afflicted, but we're still called to pray in the midst of them. And so when it says that we are saved, it means we are saved in the sense that God's purposes as we come to him, trusting, relying, even in a sense, not fully seeing that his purposes will be accomplished in us. I mean, think about it. Was Jesus unworthy? Was he faithless when he prayed in the garden 
If this cup can be taken from me, would it be so? Jesus never sinned, so that obviously wasn't sin. It wasn't faithlessness in this abject sense. And yet God did not answer that prayer. But God saved him in the sense that he accomplished his purposes in Christ, in his crucifixion and resurrection. So we shouldn't be presumptuous about the course of life, what God is doing. Every prayer that we pray is a prayer of, here's what I desire. But it's not as if we are putting a gun to God's head. We don't have the full picture. But we do ask, in a sense, prayer in this way, that prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, right? Remember, prayer gives us an idea. Why we pray gives us an idea of who we think God is. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. Rather, it's laying hold of God's willingness. His willingness to bless, to fill, to make you holy, to raise you up on the last day, as James talks about as well. And so we're to see the church, our congregation, Ascension Presbyterian as a community, as a family, for sure. But it's also a hospital, a mash unit, if you remember that show from ages ago, a mash unit for sinners, people in need of healing, people in need of strength, people in need of prayer, people who are soul sick and in various stages of struggle with their sin. And all of us are patients in that hospital. But here's the great mystery of what it means to be the church. We are also doctors and nurses in that same place where we're being healed. And we do this through the efficacy and the strength of the Holy Spirit working in word and in prayer. We exist in many ways to pray for one another and to petition the Lord for our healing, spiritual, physical, and otherwise. But you see, the only way any of this is possible is not by us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? It is possible because of where we find our life. And our life is not found in trying harder. It is found in Christ alone. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says this, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to what? To make intercession. Since Jesus always lives to do what? To pray for us. Jesus now lives at this very moment is praying for us. So think about it this way. Have you ever struggled with your prayer life? Yes. Okay. You don't have to nod your head or do anything. All of us have. I have. I do. But prayer is not something that is foreign to us as Christians. It is now something that is sewn into the very fiber of our DNA as part of who we are. And the Christian life, the whole of the Christian life, is this effort it fits in fits and starts of living up to who we already are. We're not trying to earn something by, have, by being engaged with God in prayer. Rather, that is who we are. And the struggle of the Christian life is flowing, throwing off the flesh, the things that so easily encumber us and keep us bound to who we once were. But we are new creation. And we find our life in Christ. That is who you are, is a prayer. And you think about it, it has to be that way because prayer has existed forever 
As long as God has existed, there has been prayer. Because the, the relationship of Father and Son and Holy Spirit has always existed. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always, as one God, mysteriously communicated and given praise and adoration to one another. So prayer, and that's just a very simple explanation of, of what prayer is, prayer has always existed. And now, as we are caught up into that relationship, we are called to be more fully human, even as we share in the divine life by prayer. And think about it, as we head into Easter next week, don't we have so much to pray for? As we celebrate the resurrection that God has made the world new, we have so much that would fill our hearts and our lips with prayer. That, what would we pray for? That the work of the Holy Spirit, who Christ pours out, would continue to be extended for the healing and restoration of the nations. That the church, that this church would be a people of grace and of holiness. And that especially we would celebrate the victory of God over death, sin, and the evil one for his glory and for the restoration of his people. So let me just stand in the place where James stood and say, pray. Know the healing that God gives as he invites us to fellowship with him in prayer. Worship him in prayer. Hosanna to God in the highest. Let's pray now. Lord, our brother James gave the example of Elijah as a righteous one whose prayers you heard. But he did not give him as an example as someone who is far and above us, unreachable, unreachable, some dude who we might see put into the stained glass of church, a super saint. But as James said, he had a spirit just like us. He was a sinner who needed and received your grace in Christ. And so I do pray that even as you exhort us to pray, because of all the goodness that it brings, because of the great privilege that it is, because of the way that it is a discipling of you toward us and even us toward one another, that you would animate us to pray, not so that we could brag, but so that we could see your power and your glory extended in our lives and in the life of the world. Help us to do this, not out of shame or out of guilt, but out of a sense of what a great treasure we have in God. How could we not go to you in prayer? And we ask this in the name of the one who prays for us now, Jesus himself. Amen.